while here, we are practicing mindfulness. We practice mindfulness of our speech and behavior by undertaking the precepts, and this purifies the mind of the defilements that we sometimes act out by speaking or acting carelessly. We're also practicing mindfulness by developing an ongoing awareness of moment-to-moment -moment experience, sitting, walking, and general activities. And by cultivating and to the extent that we develop mindfulness moment-to-moment, -moment, we prevent the defilements from arising in any moment that we're mindful. This purifies our mind temporarily of the hindrances and what are called the torments of the mind. We're also practicing vipassana, or insight. And insight is the result of developing wisdom. And it happens quite naturally or gradually from just paying attention. We don't have to construct elaborate belief systems or we just pay attention and as we pay attention we slowly gather information about the way things are and then at some point we've got enough information that we just see oh well, this is the way it is. Not because we've thought it out, but because we've just really deeply observed this is how it is. You know, if you wanted to really understand the behavior of deer, you know, there's, there's deer around here. We've all seen them. We, you know, they're around and we've seen deer at other times in our life. And we could sit here, all of us, and talk about deer and what we think the nature of deer are or is. But if you really want to know, all you have to do is stand there and watch one. And the longer you watch, the more you'll know. And at some point, you'll be able to speak quite authoritative, authoritatively about the nature of deer. Well. Our own life and mind is something like that. We've lived with ourselves our whole life, <laughs> more or less. I mean, we're absent a lot of the time, but nevertheless, we haven't been living with anybody else but ourselves. So we know ourselves generally, but insight comes from paying attention in a continuous, very microscopic way to what's going on in this mind and body. And as we gain in insight knowledge, we purify the mind of wrong understanding, which implies that we have a lot of wrong understanding about how we are, who we are, the way it is in this mind and body. And it's through insight that we overcome and eventually uproot these wrong understandings from the mind. Once you've seen something, 
and know it to be true, and you live from that knowledge, you never go back. You never go back to believing otherwise because you're living from your new understanding. Well, this is what insight is. It's so immersing yourself in a deep understanding, a deep correct understanding of the way things are in the mind and the body, that you just, it's not a matter of forgetting it or remembering it, it's you live from that place. It's like gravity. You know, we all, we all know what gravity is, we could talk about it, but we live from the place of understanding gravity. As soon as you, you know, in the dark, you take a step and the step isn't where you think it's supposed to be and you're about to stumble. You know, before your foot ever hits the ground, that it's not in the right place and gravity's working. You don't forget. It's not a matter of remembering or forgetting. It's like the body is and the mind are so saturated with the right understanding of the law of gravity. It's not a matter of, do you remember it at this time or not? Same with insight. The mind gets so saturated with the right view of and understanding of the mind and body that it's not a matter of forgetting or remembering or either choosing to or not to. You just live from that understanding. What is it? What are the understandings of insight that are so powerful, that are so transformative? Because it's said that vipassana leads to insight, the deepest insight leads to peace. Not just happiness, pleasure, ecstasy, bliss. Beyond that is peace. Huh, okay. That means no matter what the conditions are, the mind is peaceful. What is it that the mind needs to know? What is it that we need to understand from insight? It's really simple. There's just three things you have to know, or three understandings that arise due to Vipassana insight. And the first is, everything changes. We know everything changes. We see our bodies change, we see our minds change, we see the weather change, we see the economy change. We know things change. What's the secret? We know it, but we know it up here, kind of in our head as, a, as an idea. What we don't know is how to live within the understanding or from the understanding. Everything changes all the time. I'll speak more about it. The second understanding that insight reveals is that it is very difficult to rely on things for a stable, secure, satisfactory life. Things, things, people, institutions, relationship, things. It just means that it's hard to find satisfaction in life. 
The Stones had it right. I can't get no satisfaction. That's insightful. I don't know what they, they really meant, but I'll speak more about that. The third understanding, and this is a little more elusive, it's a little more refined, it's a little harder to kind of grok, but nevertheless, let me just say, it's the understanding that, well, in the modern jargon, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. This whole process that's going on here is impersonal. It's just happening due to causes and conditions that are, for the most part, outside of our immediate direct control. Stuff happens. And yet, we personalize it as to me, it's mine, it's my fault, it's my responsibility, it's all about me, it's my body. It's you know? From one, from one perspective, it is. <laughs> it is all about it. It's like we don't have anything else to rely on. I mean, it's, it's all about me. But from the deepest understanding of insight, it's not. This is a, a, an unfolding process of conditions that are just... When we attach to it, we suffer. When we let go of it, we're free. Some of these three understandings are, okay, we get things are impermanent. We get that sometimes things are painful, you know, dukkha. And we get sometimes things are out of control, that we just can't make things happen the way we want. We, we understand that. But Vipassana insight is learning to see these understanding in every moment's experience. And when we do, the understanding of them frees the mind from suffering. No matter what the conditions are, no matter how unpleasant, how overwhelming, it doesn't happen. The mind does not fall into being distressed or reactive. Hmm. No conditions tormenting the mind. Hmm. Okay, go for it. Let's see. Mindfulness occurs just by paying attention. Connecting to the experience, sustaining your attention on the experience, and recognizing this is, this is what's happening. In time, the power of connecting, sustaining, and clear seeing is so strong that we will see even what we don't want to, even what we've avoided all our life, even what we feared all our life, or what has been shameful or humiliating. You can't stop the mind. If it's into seeing things the way they are, it will see things the way they are. It's a muscle. Mindfulness is a muscle that we develop through training. And its function is to, to remember. To remember and to see things as they really are. When we see mindfully an experience whether it's an experience of 
some part of the body, some sensation in the body, or some uh, emotion, or some mental state. When we see it, when we observe it, when we really touch it with mindfulness, we taste its unique flavor. You know, aching is different than heat. Heat is different than throbbing. Throbbing is different than pressure. Pressure is different than hardness. They're different. They have their unique flavor. The same with the mind. You know, frustration feels different than disappointment. Disappointment feels different than sadness. Sadness is different than grief. Grief is different than despair. Despair is different than depression. Happiness is different than joy. Joy is different than bliss. Bliss is different than equanimity. Why? How do we know that? Because we taste it. We taste each one of these states of mind, each one of these uh, mental or physical phenomena as they occur. This kind of cataloging of the unique flavor of each moment's experience is the foundation upon which insight develops. So, learning to taste the flavors of each moment, that's, that's our work. That is the observing. Just sit still, pay attention, observe. As if you were <coughs> observing deer, only in this case you're observing mind-body. Okay. By observing these unique flavors, one after another, for as long as it takes, it suddenly, it suddenly dawns on you Everything comes into being, and it's known, and then it leaves. Everything that you've ever experienced has been, has been just like that. Something has come together, you've had an experience, and it's over. It's gone. Never to be repeated in that way again. The good sitting you had earlier today, gone. Never to be repeated. The bad sitting you had today, also gone. Never to be repeated, thank goodness. <laughs> this knowledge, I mean, we can think it through. You know, I'm not saying anything that you find hard to believe, but we don't live from that place. But when we understand, even when we just hear that things change, if we can really take it in and believe it, we'll start making different decisions in our life. We'll start expecting things to change. You don't have to, to, to hope that they won't. You just know things will change. So it's, it's no surprise when they change. When things are unsatisfactory, it's no surprise that they're unsatisfactory. You know, you know things don't stay the same for very long. Whatever is satisfying you now is going to change. If it's satisfying you and changes, what's, the, what's left? Well, not so satisfied. It's, it's in the very nature of stuff that arises and passes away. Okay. Now I want to talk about these three understandings. The first is the understanding of impermanence, or anicca, it's called in the Pali language. It means events, experience, stuff is subject to arise and disappear. It changes. It's momentary. It doesn't last. Why don't we see that? Why don't we live deeply from that? Well, think about this. We get ourselves into 
careers, in relationships, and financial obligations and political obligations and civic responsibilities to try to hold things in place so that they're reliable and dependable and we know this person's going to be there for us, the bank is going to be there for us, the job is going to be there for us in our IRA. Well, it used to be there for us. <laughs> we try to prevent, we, we live our life as if we could somehow insulate ourselves from experiencing change. We take our vitamins, we do our aerobics, we do our yoga, we do our whatever we do, and still, the body gets sick. What did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. This is the nature of the body. It changes. Oh, okay. We miss it because we don't look very closely. We think. You know, I get up in the morning, I go in, I you know, take my shower, stand in front of the mirror, comb my hair, and I say, yep, still me, okay? But we've been saying that every day for the last 30 or 40 years, and yet none of us look like we did 30 or 40 years ago. Why? Well, we didn't see the change that happened day by day by day by day. And actually, moment by moment, split second by split second, this body is changing. We know it. Somebody told us every cell in the body changes every seven years. But there's a recognizable pattern of appearance here and, you know, behavior in the mind, in the body that seems to say things don't change that much. We miss it. Because of the continuity, what's called in, in the text, the massive continuity of phenomena. It is so massive and it is so continuous, we are deluded into thinking things don't change, especially me. Huh. Another thing that we do is by looking at or seeing or observing a state of mind or a physical condition, we assume it's not like we really believe, it's not like we really think it, it's not even like it's a conscious assumption, but there's just a feeling. This is the way it's going to be forever. You know, you sit down and you're struggling with, oh, just, you know, sleepiness or restlessness or pain in the body, and it's just like, God, this is the way it's going to be, a whole sitting. Yeah. Or, or maybe less frequent, but maybe increasingly more during this day of the retreat, we sit down, and it's like, oh, what? so quiet, it's so still, it's like, wow, the mindfulness is good. Now I got it. This is the way it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. No, it's not. And yet the mind somehow just extends. It just, it just assumes that things aren't going to change. And so we are continually up against this delusion that things don't change. And so we have to just keep seeing over and over and over again, things change moment to moment. And in time, we actually see just how fast things are changing. So fast, you can't keep up with it. Physical experience, mental experience, mostly cognitive experience is just zooming by at this extraordinary rate of speed. When we see that, when we, when we start to live from that place of seeing, I 
can't rely on anything for one split second to be there the next split second. Well, you know what that feels like? It feels like your relationship, your job, your IRA, the government, the economy, and the weather all went to hell in one day. Every day, every minute. <laughs> Ouch. This is, I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. Life is really unstable. It's upsetting. It's like, wait, where, where, who, how? When you're really open to the insight into impermanence, that's what you feel. Life is out of control. I can't stand it. This is unstable. I feel insecure. I'm afraid. I'm terrified. It's like, what's going to happen to me? I don't know. Well, we have to be ready for that. We have to be ready to, to withstand that knowledge. Oh, th this, is, this is the way it is. Now, all you got to do is open your eyes and, and come back into ordinary reality and forget paying attention, and your delusion will kind of cover up that information, and you won't see it anymore, and you'll feel like, okay, phew, it really is safe. <laughs> okay, good. You know, you can always slow it down a little bit. But ultimately, you've got to see it, and you've got to come to see that knowledge, gain that knowledge, and learn how to live with it. How, learn how to live with that knowledge. This is the way it is. Can I be with that? Yeah. Okay. And then you, you live through life and you face conditions in life with that understanding. You don't expect things. You don't hope for things. You don't demand that people and others don't change. You know they will. You will too. Oh. The only way you can do that is to let go. Just let go of what you, the way you think things should be, or how you want things to be, or what you expect things to be. Just let go, let go, let go, let go. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't know where your home is and who your partner is and which job you go to the next day. You do. You still go to the same job. You still go to the, you like the same food. You still do the same things, but you don't demand it. And when it doesn't happen the way you thought or expect, or hoped, or you don't get upset. When things change out from underneath you, you understand, oh, this, this, this is the way things are. At the moment-to-moment -moment level of seeing the mind and body, we get a glimpse of and sometimes get a sustained view of what I call the pixelated view of life. Life is just one discrete moment after another. There's a discrete experience here, 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 here. And it just goes on like that from conception to death and maybe beyond. It's just one discrete moment. And so we just any moment that you take a look at yourself, you're just getting a snapshot. But our mind makes it into a movie. It's just a snapshot. It's just doom, doom, doom. But somehow we run it all together into a continuity of me. And when the continuity is broken or disrupted, dramatic events in life, just kind of show us the discontinuity that is always existing. And then we get really upset, you know. We get downsized, you know. Come in, you get your pink slip, whatever it is that you get at job. You get downsized. You are no longer who you thought you were. 
nobody's referencing you as the other employee. It, your history, gone. It's over. That story, finished. Well, we thought there was a movie going along where I was starring in the role of me, and the movie came to an end. Ouch. Unless we're prepared to accept things are impermanent and really living from and not being surprised by things are impermanent. Years ago, long before I ever met Kamala, I had been in a relationship and it went south, but I didn't want to go south with it. And, you know, I used to say to my soon to be former partner, <laughs> Remember the way things used to be? That's the way they still are. They weren't, but I didn't accept it yet. And I just wanted to, in, in my mind, I was trying to hang on to the way things used to be. We all do this. We do it with relationships. We do it with our sense of self. I used to be able to do X, Y, Z. I used to have these aspirations. I used to have these ambitions. I used to have these goals or achievements, accomplishments. Can't do it anymore. Don't want to, whatever, for whatever reason. And yet, sometimes it's a disappointment. Sometimes we feel frustrated. Sometimes we feel anxious about the change that's happening to me. A friend of ours, uh, Jack Engler, also practitioner and has studied and has taught some in this tradition. He says, the Pasna practice is like one long grieving process. Why? Because we see everything that we've experienced is gone. We've lost it. When you lose something and you experience loss, there's a moment of accepting the loss or resisting the loss. If you learn how to grieve effectively, you experience loss, you feel what that feels like, and you move on. It's just a momentary experience of it's lost, and now life is full again with this moment's experience. But when we hang on to, or when we can't accept, or we can't allow ourselves to feel that loss, we get stuck in what is conventionally called the grieving process. And we can grieve for a long time. We can hang on to what has been, what is lost, what has been gone, what has disappeared. Or we can resist the feeling of, of loss. What does loss actually feel like? You know, you get fired from a job. Your inside just gets hollowed out. Or you get dumped, your partner goes, goodbye. You're just a shell of what you used to feel like. And the emptiness inside you, 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 you can't, it's, it's so painful that we would do anything to not feel that. And so we fill it up with plans and memories and hanging on and expectations and hopes and we get involved with other people, <laughs> whatever, anything, keep from feeling that feeling. But if we could, just actually, Nakedly, if the mindfulness was there, to just feel that loss. 
he will be there for, you know, a second or two or five or a minute or two. Things don't last. Everything changes. So too, the feeling of loss doesn't last. It may come back a few times. It comes back a dozen times, a hundred times. You now are getting familiar with feeling it. Feel it, let it go. 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 Eventually, the memory comes. The loss is a memory that's not a current feeling and there's no resistance to it. It's just a memory. There was a loss. No resistance, no. And we've moved on. Learning how to grieve effectively is effective Vipassana practice. The second knowledge or the second insight to be developed or to be revealed in um, through mindfulness and insight practice is the characteristic of dukkha. We've spoken some about dukkha. But ordinarily in our life, we try to maximize pleasure. We want pleasant conditions. We want to be warm. We want to be safe. We want to be happy. We want to be comforted. We want to be content. We want to be emotionally pleasant, physically pleasant, financially pleasant, socially pleasant conditions. We want that. We do what we can. We, 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 we structure our life. We strategize throughout our life in order to secure as much pleasantness as we can get. It is an endless treadmill to reach for and seek more pleasure. However, pleasure doesn't promise or doesn't fulfill its promise. We think, we assume, we, we, we have this, it's not, we don't really believe it. If we were ever asked, do you believe this? We'd have to say no. But there's an assumption in the mind that kind of feels like if I could just get constant pleasure, then I'd be happy. You know what? It's not possible. It's not possible. So there's a mistaken assumption that continuous pleasure equals happiness. And in fact, we often evaluate ourself, our sense of self, by how much pleasure we can experience, even in meditation. We come in, we sit down. If we have a pleasant sitting, you know, the body's not so painful, the mind is not too tormenting us, we think, I like myself. It's good. But then later in the day, we come in, we sit down. Oh, the body's in agony. It's like every little thing is hurt. And we're squirming and just restless. And you know, the mind is just torturing us with doubt and upsetness. And God, yeah, ooh, I don't like myself. Based on pleasure or pain. Our sense of self-worth, our sense of ourself is conditioned by pleasure and pain. Samsara is this cycle, this endless cycle of looking for happiness 
in experiences that can't offer it. Seeking enjoyment, seeking excitement, seeking the novel, seeking what's new, thinking that that's going to make us happy. And we keep doing it. If this job didn't do it, the next job will. If this relationship doesn't do it, maybe the next one will. If this retreat doesn't do it, maybe the next one will. If this book doesn't do it, maybe the next one will. And there's this kind of endlessness to seeking for stuff, things, experience, to, to hopefully make us happy. It's difficult to see the way out of that. And our culture doesn't do us any favors because there are just infinite number of people and companies willing to sell you anything you're gullible enough to believe in will bring you happiness. But think about it. We've been looking, we've been searching, we've been strategizing, scheming, and acquiring most of what we've wanted for decades. And the momentum hasn't stopped or slowed down one bit. What is going to do it for us? Really? Ask yourself, when, 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 is it, when are you going to have enough? What is it, what is it going to be to be enough, finally? And then be content with your life. Hmm. I don't know. It's, not, it's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Where you've got enough of everything. Full. Ah, don't need anything else. Just live with that. This unsatisfactoriness is hard to see. It said that the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, is to be investigated. It's to be investigated because we're willing to overlook it all the time. But dukkha means, well, there's three elements to dukkha. The first element is pain. Things are dukkha, dukkha when they're painful. When the body is in pain, whether it's the pain of disease or just the pain of sitting still or the pain of slamming your finger in the door or the pain of a toothache, that's, that's painful. We all experience that. that. That's really unsatisfactory. The mind also has its dukkha dukkha. It gets lonely, it gets upset, it gets fearful, it gets anxious, it gets depressed, it gets jealous, it gets envious, it gets angry, rageful, you know, frustrated at this point. It's like, that's so obvious. That kind of mental suffering is so obvious, it's called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> we, all, we all experience that. All, be, all beings experience that. It's not a mistake if you feel pain in the body, in the mind. It's not a mistake. That's the way it is. But we resist it. We struggle against it. We try to avoid it. We try to minimize it, deny it, get rid of it, make our life so that we don't have to experience it. Actually, we should say, oh, I'm sick, finally. Things are normal. But somehow when we get sick, we think there's something wrong. There's not something wrong. This is the way the body is. Or when the mind gets upset, the mind gets you know, frustrated, disappointed, experiences loss and all that. We think, oh, I've got to fix it. I've got to figure it out so I can fix it and get rid of it. This is normal. This is natural. There isn't anybody in the room that hasn't experienced a lot of this. So it's not unique to you. But we miss it. 
we miss what the Buddha is pointing to because we personalize it and say, oh, it's just me. I haven't got my act together. You know, I haven't got my act together. Therefore, I still get lonely. I still get jealous. I still get angry. I still get frustrated and disappointed. It's just my, it's just my problem. Actually, everybody's got the same problem. <laughs> Everybody experiences this. You know, unless there's those fully enlightened beings, which, well, we're heading in that direction. That's one level of unsatisfactoriness, physical and mental unsatisfactoriness. But there's another meaning to the word dukkha that needs to be understood. It's not so much that it's a direct, immediate, painful experience. It's not that. But it's related to the fact that pleasant, enjoyable, comfortable experience changes. Everything changes. And when the pleasant, enjoyable, comfortable, social, physical, mental, emotional, governmental, and economic, religious, spiritual things of your life change, well, it's upsetting because they change. And so we know that things change at some level. And so we live with this constant insecurity, constant insecurity, knowing that things are going to change. Don't know when, don't know how, but we know they're going to change. They might get better, but they might not. And so just on the periphery of our vision is this understanding, looming, things are going to change. And so we don't know when, we don't know how, and so we're forever kind of, kind of insecure about things. And again, we miss it. We miss it. We think, oh, it's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anxious. I, I, you know, I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling vulnerable. It's just me. You know, once I get it, once I get my act together, then I won't feel that. No, you still will, because conditions change. We we still will feel that. It's not like we're going to get it finally together. You get it together, and even that can change. Huh? Jeez, how are we going to get out of this mess? Okay. It's not that we say pleasant experience is painful. It's not. Feeling, you know, having a good, nice retirement account, you know, <laughs> it's not that that's bad or feels bad. It's just, it can change and has for most of us. Uh, it's just, we don't know how to make it not change. So we say that dukkha is hidden in pleasant objects, pleasant experience, pleasant conditions. It's not painful, but it's still dukkha because it doesn't provide the security that we all need to feel happy all the time. Okay, now as if those two weren't enough, there's a third flavor of dukkha and it's called Sankara dukkha and there's two elements of this, two, two, two views of Sankara dukkha and the macro view is we're born, and our parents and other caregivers doing the best they can take care of us. And they feed us, and they bathe us, and they clothe us, and they love us, and they coo us, and they educate us. And, uh, you know, for a few years, or, or as, as long as they can stand it, and then, you know, slowly and gradually they hand you off to the teachers and other people, your peers and, and your neighbors, and, you know, and let them help with the process. 
But eventually, you know, in your early or mid-teens, you finally get the message. You're on your own, kid. And now you have to do it. Now we each have to take on the responsibility of caring for this mind and the body. So the body. Well, every day, you've got to bathe it, you've got to groom it, you've got to clean it, you've got to dress it, you've got to take care of it, you've got to exercise it, you've got to keep the body happy or it gets really unpleasant. And, you know, to feed it, you have to get some food. To get the food, you have to have the money. To get the money, you got to have a job. To get the job, you got to have an education. Sixteen years of schooling, there's some dukkha. <laughs> and then you got to spend all that time going shopping, and you take all the stuff home and you put it in the cupboard, and when it's time to eat, you take it out, you heat it up, you cook it up, whatever you do. Thank you very much. And for doing it for us, thank you. And you know, and you spend all that time doing it. You gobble it down in about five minutes. Get a little bit of pleasure of the taste as it's going through. Then you got to digest it. But in the meantime, you're cleaning up all the mess, washing all the dishes, putting it all away, putting it in the garbage, and eventually taking the garbage to the dump or to the tipster or whatever it is. And you know, for five minutes of pleasure eating this food, you got to work twenty hours of your life. Okay, now that's just taking care of the body. Now you've got this mind. Now this mind has got to be, you want to keep your mind happy. But if you don't keep your mind happy, it will get bored. If you don't keep it distracted, it'll get upset. It'll get frustrated, it'll get disappointed. It'll get, well, it'll just drive you crazy if you don't keep it entertained. <laughs> and if you just say, well, to hell with it, I'm not going to do anything. It's being like, on a, like being on a retreat your whole life. That'll, that's dukkha. Okay, so now you have to take care of this body, you got to take care of this mind, and you got to do it every day. For one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, some of us, eight, nine, decades. Every day, you got to take care of this thing. You can't get anybody to do it for you. You have to do it. At the end of which, what happens? wrap it all up, put on the best clothes, put it in a little box with silk things around, cover up the box, put it in a hole in the ground. <laughs> Over. Now, some would say, bad investment. <laughs> all that time, all that money, all that love, everything is just like, <laughs> over. And you know what? You got to do it. No choice. Now, if that's all we're doing with our life, is carrying this body and the mind comfortably to the grave, we are wasting our time. On the other hand, if we see, you know what, I've got to use this, this situation to free the mind from suffering and practice, then we can, we can really make something of value out of this life. We can free the mind. That's the macro view. There is the micro view. We're born with these five senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and this mind. They are being stimulated constantly, all the time. There's sounds going on, there's sights going on. Even if you close your eyes, you still see visions. Sounds going, there's sensations happening in the body all the time. And the mind, has it shut up yet? It's just yabbering, 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 yabbering. You know, we get so exhausted we, can't, we, we just kind of numb ourselves out and fall asleep. 
or you know, if you're not successful at that, you can you can drink yourself silly, you can smoke yourself silly, you can you can do all kinds of drugs just to kind of get away from it, or at least make it more pleasant somehow. But you can't stop it. We have to bear this. We have to bear this constant contact. We try to make it pleasant. We try to make it subtle. We try to make it really nice. Nevertheless, it's still contact. When you really get sensitive to it. Any of that contact is really painful, really unpleasant. It's burdensome. It's just oppressive. You just can't get away from it. Of course, it's really hard to open to this understanding because, like, uh, what's the alternative? <laughs> we don't see any. We don't know of any. There is one, but can only be discovered through practice. So. Dukkha has this experience of pain and insecurity and the understanding. Now let me let me let me be clear. To fully grok dukkha, it is an understanding. It's not just living with painful mind and body all the time. It's the understanding that security and pleasure and could you know it's just not possible in this body. Relying on this body or mind that is constantly changing and that is conditioned, it's just not possible. And it's that understanding. That understanding is actually very freeing. Why? Because when you really understand that things, experience, people, roles, relationships, positions, stuff, cannot provide the security you seek, cannot provide you constant pleasure, cannot insulate you from feeling pain, and insecure and vulnerable and oppressed. Cannot. Once you understand that, you don't expect it to. That is freeing. That is really freeing. To not expect to be free of that. To just willingly bear. To willingly bear it is freedom. But why don't we see this? You know, it's said that the first noble truth of dukkha has to be investigated because we don't want to live with unsatisfactoriness in our life. We want to think and pretend that it's satisfactory. This relationship is good. This job is good. This house is good. This neighborhood is good. This We try to. You know, it's beneficial. It's pleasant. It's satisfying. Satisfying. Because the alternative or the opposite is just so unbearable. It's not satisfying. It's unsatisfactory. We miss, it is said, we miss seeing the dukkha characteristics because we just keep moving. Because we don't let the body sit still. We just keep that body moving. As long as you keep that body moving, you don't recognize how unsatisfactory it is here. But you know, when you sit still and you sit you, you just sit down and you pay attention to the body. It doesn't take long to find dukkha. It doesn't take long. It takes a while to figure out how to live with it in a, in a kind of a non-struggling way. But if you sit still and pay attention, even if you're in the most ergonomically designed, comfortable chair, you can even lay down in a bed. If you pay attention, within minutes you'll find dukkha. That's the nature of the body. It's also the nature of, of the mind. I won't say not the nature of the mind, but in the normal or the conditioned activity of the mind, dukkha.
when we begin to open to the truth of dukkha, everything in life looks really unsatisfactory. Our experience looks unsatisfactory. Our self looks unsatisfactory. Our, our practice looks unsatisfactory. Everything looks unsatisfactory. How are you ever going to continue practicing when you see that? You want to pray, you want to hope that you have a really trustworthy teacher. Somebody who's been through this part of the terrain. Because if you don't have a teacher who's been through this, when you get to this level of dukkha, you will stop practice. You will think, this is going in the wrong direction. This is not what I expected. This is not the, the, the spiritual life that I thought that I was headed for. And you'll turn away from it. But until you really fully grok the truth of dukkha, you won't let go. Won't let go. And that's what's required. Learning how to let go of what is causing this dukkha. The second noble truth is dukkha is caused by craving. It's caused by clinging. It's caused by hanging on. And until you know what you're hanging on to, until you know what you're clinging to, you can't let it go. And so the, the dukkha that you see in practice will cause you, you know, in time to let go. This is, this is the only way. Anyway. Many of you know that uh, on Maui we're creating a small Dharma sanctuary. And for many years we were working with the water department, the local water department, to get a better supply of water to our property. And it just was a long process. Ended up being 12 years and very, very expensive. But in the middle of it, it was just dragging on after five, six, seven, eight years. I don't remember how long. And the price was just going up from 120000 to 500000 to 700000 And eventually, I ended up over a million dollars. But at some point in there, I said, I called up the deputy director of the water department and said, this is getting too expensive. Can't we, can, I, can I talk with you about some possible changes to, to the plans and kind of figure out a way to reduce the cost to us and our neighbors? He said, sure, come on in. So I went in and I had a list of, you know, eight or ten things that I thought we could do differently to reduce the cost. So I sat down with he and there was a couple of engineers and a couple of other people from the water department and I said, you know, you asked us to build a 10,000-gallon water tank. Couldn't we get by with just a 1,000-gallon water tank or maybe a 3,000-gallon water tank? This thing costs $250,000, you know, and what's it for? We don't really need it. Uh, you know, so they had their discussion and they looked in their book and how many, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they came back and they said, no, you know, according to regulation XYZ, number 4567, uh, 10,000 gallons. Okay. How about this 8-inch pipe? If we could just reduce this 8-inch pipe to 6-inch pipe, there's not, not that many people going to be using this water. There's only a few. You know, that would save us, you know, $50,000 if we could, you know. So again, they had a discussion, looked in the books, checked their requirements. No, that's not going to be possible. It needs to be 8-inch. Okay, instead of having three pressure-reducing valve stations at $75,000 a piece, couldn't we have just two? There's not that much elevation drop to reduce the pressure. No, no, no. You know, and that would save us $75,000 if we could just get two instead of three. Huh? They had their discussion. No, elevation drop, number of houses, got to have three. Okay. After a couple more of these, the deputy director looked at me and said, you know what? He says, you're old enough to know, and you don't need me to tell you, life's unfair. <laughs> well, 
in that moment, my mind exploded. It was just like rage and resentment and how dare he and humiliation. And I was so unhappy. <laughs> and I was just, you know, and just all the possible emotional reactions I could have just kind of scrolled through my mind, just like, it felt like an hour went by. Probably it was three seconds, but it felt like an hour. It's just, you know, and I was just like, my mind arrived at this place that said, this is the way it is. It's not satisfactory, but this is the way it is. And the corollary of that was, it can be dealt with. And the mind, uh, uh, within seconds, took in all of the suffering, all of the unsatisfactoriness of that, and arrived at this place of accepting this is, this is the way it is. And it can be dealt with. I don't know how yet, but it can be dealt with. Why? How could the mind do that? Because it's so easy to want to blame, get angry, get fearful, just you know, go storming out of that, throw the paper down and say, I'm out of here. <laughs> Whatever you want to say. Because when the mind has seen this is the way it is, over and over and over again, things that are unsatisfactory, and it has just come to see, to, able to see when things are really unsatisfactory and accept things are unsatisfactory. That's the way it is. We need practice seeing that. You know, and so we, we, we look at our own mind and body and to see this over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually we live from this place of understanding it's unsatisfactory, that can be dealt with. Yeah. And the mind is very equanimous in facing what initially appears to be unbearable, untenable, absolutely unokay conditions. Until you see this is the way it is. And the mind is balanced. And when the mind is balanced, it can deal with anything. Anything. It doesn't matter how unsatisfactory it is. The mind doesn't fall into reactivity. That's the second. The third uh, insight knowledge to be gained, and I'm, I'm sorry I ran over time, I'm not going to give you a very full description of it, but it's to see that things are impersonal. To see that all of our experience is conditioned, is created out of conditions. This thing called a retreat happens because you know, there's a registrar and there's people that want to do a retreat and they contact some teachers and they schedule and it all comes together and toom, all these strands of conditioning come together to create this thing called a retreat. But this retreat, there's no such thing inherently as a retreat. It's just a composite picture of all the conditioning that goes into making it happen. It's like if you walk into a museum. You walk in the front door of a museum, you look across the big empty hallway in the beginning, and on the far wall is a tapestry. Huge tapestry, 20 feet by 30 feet. Big tapestry. And on the, the picture on the tapestry is you know, two women having a conversation over a bowl of fruit on a table. And you look at that and say, wow, 
you know, and you can see every detail in their face. And you just, you can see the fruit is just luscious, and you see the two women's faces, and you think, you, you, re you can read their minds. They're so expressive. Hmm? You walk across the hall, you walk across the room, and you get closer to it. And at some point, it's so big, and you're so close, you can't even see the whole thing. All you're looking at now is the bowl of fruit. It's like, wow, that apple is about the size of a basketball. Mm. You know, and you see it, and you still have this belief about this bowl of fruit. And then, if the docent isn't looking, you get really close. And you get really close to the tapestry, and you look, and it's like, <laughs> there's no bowl, there's no fruit. All there is is a bunch of little threads. It's just a little red thread, a yellow thread, a white thread. You know, some of them are coarse, some of them are fine, some of them are silk, some of them are wool. It's just, it's just a bunch of threads. There's no bowl, there's no fruit, there's no women, there's no pictures, there's no nothing. It's just threads. Well, at that point you realize you've been deceived. You've been deluded. It's not happening. All there is is a pile of threads. It's just a bunch of little pixels put together in a really interesting way to make you believe something. Our life is just like that. Our life is a bunch of pixels. It's just pixels of experience. This, this experience, that experience, this belief, that belief, this thought, this memory, this plan, this, this idea, this story, this role, this relationship. We glue it all together and we say, it's all about me. And it's just a bunch of pixels held together by the glue of identification and attachment. And because we're identified with it and we're attached to it, everything that happens gets kind of glued into and onto the story of me. And now it feels like, since the time my mother and my father picked me up and said, Oh, Stevie, you're such a cute little boy. Yes, you're a little nice. Your name is Stevie, Stevie, Stevie. Okay, you're my son. Yes, yes. Nice little boy. Yes, yes. I still believe it. You know, and I've added all these other experiences to it. Now I really think there's somebody in here called Steve. <laughs> it's just... It's just a story. It's a story that my mother and father started telling me, and, I'm, and I've continued. A few years ago, actually several years ago now, you know, I fly to go to these retreats, and so I always fly on United Airlines, and I'm a frequent flyer, and because I fly so much, I'm, I'm a premier. And, and for the last few years, I've been premier executive frequent flyer. You know, when you're premier executive, you get <coughs> privileges, first class, and stuff like that. So, one day I had to fly from San Francisco to Boston, but due to something, some mistake, some change of plans, I wanted to fly a day early. So I called up the airline and said, geez, I wanna, I'm, I've got a flight for in the morning, but I want to fly at night because I want to be there by the morning. They said, can I, I said, can I fly standby? They said, sure. There's plenty, plenty, of, plenty of empty seats on the, the red eye going to Boston. So I said, great, I'm coming down. Got down to the airport went up to the United counter. It was pandemonium. I said, oh my God, this is like packed. I said, I got to the gate, I got to the counter. I said, what's going on? They said, oh, <clears throat> our last flight to Boston got canceled. Everybody on that plane is trying to get on the last red eye. I said, oh my God. I said, yeah, but I wanna, I wanna go on that. I wanna go red, I wanna go, I wanna go standby. And they said, not a chance. That plane is overbooked. You'll never get on. I said, oh. Well, can I go to the gate anyway? This is back when you could still go to the gate. Can I go, can I go to the gate anyway? In case there's a seat I want to get on? They said, sure, you, you can go. So I went up to the gate, <clears throat> pandemonium up there. <clears throat> I, went up to, I went up to the ticket, ticket thing at the gate, and I said, you know, uh, 
I want to fly standby. And they said, oh, this plane's full. And I said, yeah, but I'm a frequent flyer. Premier frequent flyer. Maybe premier executive. I can't remember. Premier frequent flyer. You know, if there's one empty seat, I'd like to have that one. They said, well, why don't you just wait over there? And after we get everybody on the plane, we'll see. So they got everybody on the plane. They're putting them down the thing, getting on the plane. There were three of us that wanted to fly standby. So I said, I, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> premier, premier frequent flyer. So come on, come on down to come down to the door of the plane. Once we get everybody sit down, we'll see if there's any seats. We want to get this plane out on time. I said, okay, I'm the frequent flyer. <coughs> Go down there, trying to sit everybody down. And they said, can everybody sit down? They said, oh, one empty seat. And they looked at us and I said, I'm a frequent flyer. <laughs> so I said, okay, okay, come on, come on. You can get on. I said, oh. Thank God. I'm going to get to Boston on time. I went up, went up back somewhere, sitting between these two great big guys like football players, like in this little place. No overhead compartment space, luggage underneath. It was terrible, but it was great. I was on the plane. I was going to get there. I was happy. Okay, phew. All right. And while I was trying to see, create some elbow room in between these two big guys, I saw, oh, they found another seat over there. And so the second person who was flying standby got a seat over there. Oh, lucky him. Okay, okay. They close the door and they do a final destination check. This plane is going to Boston. If you're not expecting to go to Boston, please let us know. Somebody in first class goes, wait, wait I'm not going to Boston. You know, so they said, whoa, wait. They opened the door. Somebody from first class got out, left. So they said, hey, you want to fly standby? Come on. They put him in the first class seat. I said, hey, ring the bell. I'm the first class. Hey, I'm a frequent flyer. I'm the premier executive. Shouldn't I have that first class seat? <clears throat> You have a seat, sit down, we're leaving. <laughs> so I said, you're not treating me fair. You know, I just was frothing, steaming. I said, they're not treating me fair. I'm a frequent flyer. I'm a, a premier executive, frequent flyer. They're treating me bad. I'm going to write a letter. First half hour of the flight, I'm composing this letter. How I'm, you know, they're not treating me nice. <laughs> After about a half hour, I said, you know what? If I spend six hours drafting this letter on the way to Boston, I'm going to be a wreck. <laughs> so I said, I said, oh, what the hell? I'm on the plane. Let it go. So I just kind of tuned into just being on the plane. And it's like, I'm on the plane. I'm going to get there. It's OK. It's OK, Steve. Sue, sue, sue. <laughs> it's OK. It's OK. So I let go. I let go of that story. <sighs> I didn't even write the letter. I got, to, I got to Boston, still frequent flyer. Yeah. What happened? The only thing that happened is I let go of my sense of myself as being a frequent flyer, needing and demanding and expecting privileges. Still frequent flyer, still on the plane. Everything, everything's, everything's the same, except I let go of the story that was causing me so much suffering. Now let me ask you, what story have you been telling yourself today that is causing you suffering? It's just a story. It's just a story, that's all. It's a story you've been telling yourself for a week or month or six months or six years or six decades. It's just a story. 
if you ta stop telling yourself the story, you stop suffering. That's anatta characteristic. That's seeing through the illusion of there being a fixed self in this process. It's just a story. The only thing that happens when you see the anatta characteristic clearly and you accept it is you stop suffering. Life goes on without suffering. When we see things are impermanent, when we see that things are painful or cause uh, that cannot provide security, stability, and when we see that things are essenceless, there's no inherent thingness in here to it. When you see that, what can you hang on to? It's changing. It's painful. It's, it, it's essenceless. There's, there's no substance to it. You see, you really understand that there's nothing to hold on to. Nothing. And if there's nothing to hold on to and grasp for, then you let go. You just let go. Letting go is the key to the end of suffering. It is the key to the unconditioned. It is the key to the end of dukkha, when we let go. We let go because we see clearly. We really understand. This is the way it is, deeply, in this mind, in this body. When we understand that, it's, it's not painful to let go. You just let go. It's not hard to let go of a burning hot coal. It's not hard to let go of a rainbow. You can't grab it anyway. There's nothing there. And when you see the events of your life in that way, you let go. The appearance is still there. The appearance of you and the appearance of you in your roles, doing what you do, is still there. But you're not identified with it. You're not attached to it. You're not hanging on to it. So when things don't work out the way you thought, well, they never were going to anyway. You understand that. It is the understanding of these three characteristics that frees the mind from grasping. And when the mind lets go, suffering stops. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.